to the Beyond Addiction Show with Josh King. This program is designed to help those who are affected by substance use. Whether you are using, trying to stop, or a loved one who wants to help, there are many effective resources, and together we'll explore them and bring you hope. Now, here is your host, Dr. Josh King. Hello, and welcome back to the Beyond Addiction Show. I'm Dr. Josh King. And on the show today, we've got author and journalist Maya Salovitz, who's talking about her book, Unbroken Brain, and how we might be thinking about substance use disorders completely in the wrong way. She and I talk about her ideas a little bit later on. Next week on the show, we're going to be talking with Megan McGalley, who is the mother of the author, uh, Shea McGalley, who's also uh, her son, Megan's son, also died of a drug overdose. And she talks about her story as being a mother who has experienced losing a child and what she wishes she knew then that she knows now. I think it's going to be a really powerful interview. And um, I think that a lot of parents out there who have experienced this or who are afraid of experiencing this, um, I think this is going to be a good one to to check into and listen to because... Um, I think it's powerful to hear things from a parent who is also, you know, has gone through this. Today, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the brain. And specifically, I'd like to talk about the, a part of the brain, a neurotransmitter within the brain called dopamine. And why are we focusing on this? Because we, when we can understand that... Um, substance use is more than just like a moral failing. It's more than, I mean, it's not a moral failing at all. When we can understand that, that it's more than the way that we think about it in the world, then we can understand how it happens and how people get stuck into this, this uh, maelstrom that is addiction. And so what I want to do is break down some of the science, the brain science of how we end up uh, getting stuck into some substance use problems. And dopamine is the key to all of these. So there are probably um, several hundred, maybe even thousands. We don't know 100%, but there are a lot of neurotransmitters in the brain. Everything from dopamine to serotonin, which many people have heard of. That's where SSRIs, those uh, medications for depression and anxiety come in. There are endocannabinoids, which are uh, the brain's natural cannabinoid system. So for people who get worried about um, marijuana, the brain actually makes cannabinoids already. It has a whole system built into it. And that's where marijuana kind of activates and, and overly activates. Those systems, there are, um, your brain has an opiate system in it, so it is uh, already building up um, its own opiates. And we've got all of these different ways, and that is how the brain actually sends messages from one part to the other that tells it to do something. So neurons, they have to get information from one part to the other, and there is a, a space there in between different neurons. And to get information from one to the next, your neurons release these neurotransmitters which float out into the space in your brain, the synaptic gap. And when they land in the right spot, they tell the next nerve to fire or not fire. And dopamine is one particular 
uh, neurotransmitter that we've known about since about the 1950s, but it, it plays an outsized role in human learning and specifically in this area of the brain called the, the limbic system, which is if you were kind of, if you could like tunnel into your brain right down, right in the very middle of your head, kind of right above your ear, right there is uh, in the middle of your brain is the limbic system. And this is a super old part of our brain. Evolutionarily speaking, it is ancient. And it is uh, one of these areas that produces a ton of dopamine. And when we've looked into it, when scientists have looked into it and tried to figure out why, they realized a lot of learning and rewards go on in there. That's where we kind of learn this idea of rewards. And if we think about human beings, evolutionarily speaking, if we think about the, the savannas of Africa, when human beings are just coming around and we say, okay, here is um, humanity and our job is to survive. So we have to have systems that make it easier for us to survive and to reproduce. So we have a system that's built into our brains that tells us, oh, here's something and here's something that I like. And if I like it, it's probably meant for survival or reproduction. So if I'm walking down um, the path and all of a sudden I see a bush that has berries in it, my dopamine is going to activate because, oh, those berries mean a greater chance of survival for me as a human being. And so I'm going to be drawn more to that. I'm going to look for those more. I'm going to uh, be more aware. And dopamine is that transmitter. Now, one of the things that, that we've found is that dopamine, it's not just about reward. That dopamine is actually about, because I, I could get those berries all the time, and at some point I'm not as excited about the berries. What dopamine is really about is the idea of an unexpected reward. An unexpected reward. Something that I now have to be on the lookout for. I now have to be constantly searching for this because I never know when it's going to happen. And that's when dopamine naturally is occurring in our system is I don't know when this reward is going to happen, but I'm excited for it. It's going to do something for me. And so that's where dopamine has taught us to learn how to, to find things and to be looking for things that we want more, right? If my dopamine goes, I'm going to look for that again. Well, we now no longer have to hunt and gather for berries. So lots of other things are giving us dopamine bursts. When you're walking down the street and you see, you know, that awesome donut shop with the, the cool cronuts and all those amazing things, your dopamine bursts because fats, sugars, carbs, all of those things were evolutionarily drawn to want. Now, even if you are like me and you probably should eat less donuts, you're going to be drawn to eat those donuts because your dopamine fires and your dopamine fires because it's going to give you more of what you want, more of what is there to help you survive, evolutionarily speaking. Now, drugs and alcohol, they throw a big monkey wrench in this whole system. 
because they bypass the natural systems of the brain to regulate dopamine. And they kind of fire uh, this one book I'm, I'm reading about this uh, called The Molecule of More by Daniel Lieberman, um, which I highly recommend. I think it's a very easy read. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's a very easy read that, that gives this information out uh, in a way that's pretty easy to understand. Um, but what they were saying is it's like a guided missile right into the uh, limbic system. And so it overloads everything and just shoots dopamine all over your system. So now you've got dopamine shooting out faster and harder and in uh, orders that we're just not used to as human beings. And so the learning part of our brain says, okay, now I'm associating all of these different things with dopamine and with these drugs and this alcohol. So I start to associate because my dopamine's there, I start to associate the idea of maybe I went out to a party and I drank and I drank a lot and it was really great. Now I've got dopamine is associated with that party and with that drug or that alcohol. Maybe I was feeling sad and I drank and I didn't feel as sad. So now I've associated the drugs or the alcohol with feeling sad. So I start to make these associations and these connections that normally wouldn't be made because the dopamine wouldn't function in that way. But because I'm overloading the, the dopamine channels with the substance that is artificially shooting my dopamine off the charts, that's how I end up um, creating these associations. Now, I said before that dopamine is a is something that's going to help you search. And one way that, to think about it is that dopamine is like a more neurotransmitter. And I'm putting more in, in air quotes that it's telling you, go get more of this. This is a good thing for you. Go do it. So if I've already associated like good things with alcohol, right? I had fun at a party. I had, um, I felt better when I was sad. I felt more social than I usually am. Well, now my brain is saying, go get more. So I'm now pulled to find more of this alcohol. And I want it. And I want it not because logically it makes so much sense. In fact, logically, I might say, gosh, this is really screwing up a lot of things for me. Like I drink and then I don't go to work the next day and I'm on thin ice there. And, you know, my friends are really pissed off at me. But I'm pulled to because the dopamine in my head is saying, no, 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 no. This is really, really, really good for you. And we know this because dopamine fires only when things are good. So this must be good. So go out and get it. And now I'm starting to say, all right, well, it's doing this thing for me. It's making me feel better. It's making me feel more social. It's making, I get all of this stuff and my prefrontal cortex, which is Right? If the limbic system is the oldest part of the system of your brain, then the prefrontal cortex is the newest, shiniest, fanciest part of our brain. Right? This, is the, the, this is like the real marker that sets us apart from our chimpanzee cousins, is that the prefrontal cortex, which is super duper smart, can start to figure out ways to justify and to get around the issues that we're coming up with of why you shouldn't drink. Oh, well, I, I, 
I shouldn't drink because it's going to make my friends so upset with me because I keep getting into all this trouble. And prefrontal cortex says, right, but if you don't drink, you're not going to go out at all. And if you don't go out at all, you'll have no friends. So what's worse, having friends who are mad at you or having no friends at all? So you better go out there and drink. Okay, well, that's a good idea because it actually has helped me in the past. I'm going to go do it. And so from the outside, you might be looking at this person and saying, why are they doing this again? Why? Like, it doesn't even make any sense. But in their brain, the dopamine channels are saying, I'm trained to know that dopamine things are good. So this must be good too. Because dopamine is shooting off like crazy, then that must mean good. And whenever you drink or whenever you do drugs, the dopamine channels go crazy. Now, why is this really, really important? Well, it's really important because what it does is it helps us understand that addiction, like a true addiction to a substance, is not about a moral failing or willpower or strength. All of this is about how your brain learns and not learns like today, but learns evolutionarily all the way back to the savannas, back to our evolutionary past. We have been programmed. This is why we continue to exist as a species is because we have this brain that has kept us alive. And this brain is now functioning in a place that is has evolved much faster than we have. So when we can think about substance use and addiction as, all right, your brain has learned this and now we have to find ways to unlearn it, but it doesn't, it's not like what you're doing doesn't make sense. It does make sense. It makes sense both from a, what are you getting from this? Like Jonathan Fader uh, and, and David Yusko and pretty much everyone who we've had on this show talked about, right? It makes sense from, from what you get from it but it also makes sense from the point of view of your brain is actually now wired in such a way where you've connected these things and we just have to unconnect them. Now, I say it like it's so easy, but what we're trying to do is to separate these, these things out and to say, this is not a problem with willpower. It's not a problem with who you are as a human being. We just have to learn. We have to relearn things and learn differently. I also would say that the other important takeaway here is that cravings are the brain. When you have a craving to use, that's not like uh, God coming down and whispering in your ear and saying, hey, psst, guy, you really want this. Like, don't, don't listen to all those people out there who say that you don't want it. You really do. It's just your brain saying, I feel dopamine deficient right now. I feel like I need this dopamine in order to feel good or to feel normal. And if I can do that, if I can look at it in that way, what it does is it frees me up to say, okay, well, I could probably go find dopamine in other ways, right? I could go out and watch a movie that I like. I could go out and meet up with friends. I could um, play music that feels good. So what we want to do is be able to think about the brain really differently so that we can um, engage in treatment in a different way.
Right, we're going to pause there because we're going to talk more about learning and in, in a minute with uh, Maya Salovitz and her way of thinking about this. We're going to be right back with that interview with Maya Salovitz. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. CMC Foundation for Change is a new not-for-profit that is all about families helping families and parents helping parents through addiction from those who have been there. Over 111 million family members worldwide are affected in some way by addiction. CMC Foundation for Change helps give these families hope through support, education, and helpful resources. For more information about CMC Foundation for Change, please visit cmcffc.org on the web. That's cmcffc.org. Now there's a book for families who are looking to help loved ones. Beyond Addiction, How Science and Kindness Help People Change is now available at Amazon.com. Available in hardcover, paperback, and on Kindle. Pick up your copy of Beyond Addiction today. If you are a parent or a partner who is seeking guidance in helping a loved one with substance use, be sure to pick up the 20-minute guide. This is a terrific resource, and proceeds help the CMC Foundation for Change. Visit the20minuteguide.com. That's 20minuteguide.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. This is the Beyond Addiction Show. If you have a question or comment about our show, be sure to send an email to beyondaddictionshow at joshkingpsyd.com. Again, that's beyondaddictionshow at joshkingpsyd.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, welcome back. And with me today is Maya Salovitz. She is the author of the best-selling book, Unbroken Brain. And she's a regular columnist for Vice and is a contributor for Scientific American, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and The New York Times, just so many others. You're an amazing, talented author and journalist. Maya, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So you have a really interesting life story. Can you just tell us kind of how you got into this world and, and how that relates back to your history? Sure. Um, so um, I had a I had an addiction to heroin and cocaine uh, in my 20s, in my early 20s. And I got there by a very strange route, which involved first being a really geeky and oversensitive and sort of overwhelmed child uh, who had a lot of difficulty with socializing and then discovered that drugs were something other people did want to hear me talk about. Um, and so when I got to college, um, I was attending Columbia undergraduate and I was just terribly bemused by the social situation. And I discovered, well, if I had cocaine, people seemed to want me around. And so, you know, so it went, um, I got um, suspended from school and then um, 
I figured, okay, my life is ruined anyway. Now I can do heroin. And that's the very short version of um, a rather long story. Well, so it sounds like you're one of those classic cases where actually the behavior of getting into substances makes a lot of sense because you were struggling in those environments. You didn't really know how you wanted things to go. And then you found that the substances helped in a lot of ways. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, when, when I was in high school, um, I, you know, smoked pot and got involved with psychedelics. And if I had just stuck with that, um, I would have had a very different story, but, um, you know, it was the 1980s and, uh, cocaine was the big thing. Um, and I got, you know, swept up in that. Mm-hmm. And, then you kind of got things to shift and turn around for your life. Yeah. I mean, I was extremely lucky. Um, for one, um, uh, someone taught me how to protect myself um, from HIV by using clean needles um, when I was injecting in 1986. And if that person hadn't done that, I probably would have gotten infected because by that point, um, half of the intravenous drug users in New York were already HIV positive. And so what happened was I got, I was really outraged that nobody was just even telling us that there was a way we could protect ourselves or that we were at risk. And so when I did get into recovery, which kind of happened because I just realized that um, everything was falling apart, and I just couldn't go on living like that. Um, after I got into recovery, I really kind of, I wanted to write about what had happened and I wanted to understand what had happened. And so I started um, writing for the Village Voice actually about um, needle exchange. And I did what I think is the first major national piece on needle exchange from the perspective of somebody who actually injected drugs um, in 1990. And it was just, uh, you know, I had just been so horrified by my experience with first with, um, you know, trying to get into recovery and with the sort of awful treatment system we have also with the criminal justice system, although I was extraordinarily lucky that, um, probably in part for being a white woman, um, you know, I did not end up serving a lengthy term um, under the Rockefeller laws. And, you know, that's another thing that kind of inspired me to be like, why are we locking up so many black people? And why are we locking up people for having a condition that is defined by its resistance to punishment? Because, you know, addiction is defined as compulsive behavior that occurs despite negative consequences. So how can negative consequences, AKA punishment, be the way to fix it? It's like using the one thing we know won't work. It doesn't make any sense. And so, uh, you know, my whole career has been kind of about trying to understand why we do that and what that means. Um, and so one of the things that um, became clear to me during uh, my recovery and my period of, you know, just researching and trying to figure out what was happening was that, okay, if addiction is compulsive use that continues despite negative consequences, it's basically a problem with learning from punishment. Um, and that is a learning disorder. So, it's, a, 
it's a really interesting way of thinking about it, just on that before we go into the learning disorder piece, but because there is all this research that says, you know, if you punish a kid, they'll change their behavior in the moment, but they won't change their behavior in the long term. And I'm hearing you say, right, and the same thing goes with substance use. Like, it might get people to stop doing it in the moment, but, like, that doesn't make sense as a way to be handling something that, uh, you well, know. Also, it, it's, you know, in order to recover, you have to learn the coping skills that you didn't have that were what got you to be addicted in the first place. And so punishing people for not having skills doesn't really teach those skills very well. If you punish a kid for like, you know, not being able to dance, but you don't even give them any lessons, um, they aren't going to get enough. better and they're going to hate you and probably hate dancing, right? Right. So it, um, it really is a very you know, distressing and peculiar thing that unfortunately is far more tied into our country's racist history um, than to actually trying to help people who use drugs. Mm -hmm. So then you took this whole idea and started to connect it with the idea of having that addiction could be considered some kind of a learning disorder? Yeah, I mean, because, okay, it's clearly a problem with learning. Um, clearly what happens is you're not responding to punishment in relationship to the substance. And also what's very clear is that when you are addicted, it's basically the brain systems that are involved are the ones that are there to, you know, make you fall in love and to make you do just about anything to help your child and to make you avoid starvation. Um, so things that activate that system are going to be learned in a very deep way. And really, if you just like, look at like even silly things like, you know, love songs, you can have them all be sung as though the person is singing to a drug and it makes perfect sense. Um, the people with addiction have fallen in love with a drug. They have activated this system. And so, you know, so that is a problem with a specific type of emotional learning. And the thing about learning disorders in general is, with some exceptions, they are generally very specific. So like if you, um, if you have, say, dyslexia, you may be perfectly fine at learning other things. Um, it's not a problem with general intelligence. It's a problem with a specific system or a specific skill. So in some way, you're kind of going with that Gardner's idea of like multiple intelligences and saying in the emotional intelligence range, that's where the issue is? Well, I wouldn't put it that way, but I think it's more like, you know, your brain really has, um, you know, there's a limbic system that is really there, you know, I mean, evolution makes things that we associate with survival and reproduction. Those are the things that it is going to focus you on. Um, and that area of the brain is evolutionarily a lot older than the cognitive control areas. And so unless you are, um, an autistic person who can fall in love with systems, um, you are generally going to remember your first girlfriend a lot better than you're going to remember second grade math and what was actually taught at that year at that time. Um, and so the memories that are formed in addiction are very similar. You know, it's like, oh, you have that song that reminds you of them. You have all these cues that are like, oh, it was so great when I did this. You know, you see the needle or something like that and it reminds you. And just like, you know, if you um, have an ex that you're trying to avoid and then that song comes on the radio or you like 
smell the kind of food they used to make together or anything like that. Um, it's just a very similar thing. And in love and in, you know, parenting kids, like the way evolution gets us to do that is um, you have to persist despite negative consequences. Like nobody could deal with like diaper changes and screaming and, you know, tantrums and all the stuff that people have to deal with when they have kids if they weren't able to persist despite negative experience, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, but when that energy is, is directed towards a drug instead of raising a child, that causes all kinds of problems. That's a, what you're saying really rings true. I, I've had a lot of groups where, you know, we'll, we'll do a mindfulness to a song or something and people say, ah, oh, that song's hard for me because it really reminds me of use or like uh, we'll be talking about a TV show or, or um, somebody will mention an, a neighborhood and they'll say, ah, yeah, I really have this strong association with, with this substance there. So um, it definitely sounds like something that I've heard a lot. Have you, what kind of evidence have you found for this, this theory? Well, this is the thing, like basically if you look at any of the data, it's all assuming that addiction is a learning disorder. Um, it, you know, what kind of studies do we do? We have rats, rats like press a lever till they associate that lever with a drug. And um, we see if we can, you know, give them a shock and if that, that will make them desist from pushing that lever. That's like a basic learning experiment. Um, it's just the reason that um, people don't think of it this way is because that aspect of the research has sort of been seen as so obvious as to not need not need mentioning. And so when I when I first started working on this book, like these scientists were like, oh, that's old news. Nobody, you know, everybody knows it's a learning disorder. And I'm like, well, you guys have done a really terrible job communicating that to the public because right. they think it's like a brain disease. Right, um, if everyone knows it, they haven't let us at all know. No, no, exactly. And so, I mean, you can see a learning disorder as a disease, like, for example, like, you know, ADHD is a learning disorder and, and we use medication for that. So you could also kind of say it's a disease. But I think it's, it's best understood um, as a problem with learning because it fits the data of what actually happens in addiction a lot better than, say, the model of something like Alzheimer's. You know, the idea that addiction progressively gets worse is just not supported by the data at all because actually the longer you are addicted, the more likely you are to eventually recover than not because each year a few percent of people just age out of it. And so by the time you get to those older years, you have a reasonably good odds of being in that group, um, presuming that is that you survive. And that's why, you know, in the current environment, um, you know, it's so troubling that we're not doing better harm reduction to save people from fentanyl. It's, it, that's a really, it, that's like one of those stats that drives me crazy because people do say like, oh my God, now you're stuck with this and it's lifelong and it's all of these things. And that doesn't match up with the data. And I've always wondered kind of how that became the popular vernacular for substance use. And well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think there's an interesting um, way of understanding that, which is that um, it's kind of known as a clinician's error. And so like, if your disease resolves itself on its own, why are you going to go to a doctor? If your addiction resolves itself on its own, why are you going to go to a rehab? You're not. The people who are going to go to the rehabs and go to the doctors and be included in the studies are almost 
certainly going to be the people with the worst cases. So while there certainly are people for whom addiction is a lifelong problem, that is a small group among the people in general and even among people with addiction because about half of people with addiction um, do end their addiction without treatment and survive. Right. And, and we know that only 10% of people who have, who qualify for substance use disorders each year actually go and get any kind of help. Right. And many more than that, thankfully recover. So, um, so that, you know, that's, you know, and there's like, right. So, you know, if you also, it's, it's kind of like the people who recover without treatment sort of have boring stories. It's like, oh, I drank too much in college and I did a ton of cocaine and, um, you know, my life was like sort of beginning to fall apart and I decided I got to stop doing this and I did. Like, you know, there's just not that much drama in it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no TV shows are, are being made about that person. Yeah. Uh, so when you started, when you wrote this book and started bringing it out, um, how was it received by the recovery community? I mean, I, you know, mostly got an enormously positive response. Um, there certainly were people who perceived me as saying that the 12 steps are evil and bad and I hate the 12 steps. And if you actually read the book, that's not what I say. Um, but what I do say and what I have said in the book and in a lot of articles is that we don't treat any other medical condition by having the first line treatment be meeting confession and prayer. And if you do that, you are sending the message to people that this is not really a disease, that it really is a moral issue. Um, now, that's not to say that many people don't find the 12-step programs beneficial. In fact, pretty much every human being could probably benefit from taking moral inventory and making amends and doing all those things that you're supposed to do um, in the 12 steps. It's just that's not a treatment for addiction. What is helpful for addiction is having a group of people that's supportive and having um, these people have some kind of knowledge that they can impart about how to get through the tough stuff. And, you know, many of the slogans in the 12-step community are pretty similar to what you learn in cognitive behavioral therapy. It's just that it's sort of more haphazard because you might hear them at one meeting, you might never hear them, like one thing may be going through a popular phase that everybody's quoting, but they're not quoting another thing. Um, so CBT is like more systematic. Um, but anyway, I am not opposed to 12-step programs. I am just opposed to having them be a part of official treatment time, because why should we pay for what we can get for free? During the time that you are having your insurance or the government or whoever pay for addiction care, you should get stuff that you can't get for free. I think this is a pretty basic principle. Now you can say social support is critical to recovery, so you might want to try 12 steps after, um, and you might want to visit this meeting that we happen to have here, but nobody should be doing step work in treatment. Nobody should be getting paid to counsel people on the 12 step that's even in the eighth tradition you know of aa so it is just frustrating because when you have a sort of more subtle message which is not AA is bad we should ban it or AA is the only thing and it should be everything for everybody um it gets hard to get heard sometimes 
I wish that there was a way to uh, have like a like button like there is on Facebook for when people speak, because I would have been jabbing that button. While you were that. <laughs> thanks, thanks. No, it's like, it's a very, I mean, you know, it's, it's just hard to um, convey a more subtle message. And I think that's also why, um, you know, kind of getting people to understand the role of learning in addiction is a little bit more complicated. But once you see it like that, it's like, oh, okay. So, you know, my brain got wired in this way because I learned this thing in this brain region that kind of deeply embeds learning. So I need to learn something different now. Um, and it may be the case that I need medication for that. Um, first of all, in order to keep me alive. Second of all, in case, um, you know, I have some kind of other condition like depression or whatever that might be helped by medication or, um, you know, sometimes people um, who have opioid use disorder just do better on chronic opioids. It's just the way it is. And there's nothing wrong with that. Just like I'm going to stay on Prozac. Mm -hmm. it, it's it, I, I like everything that you're saying right now just makes so much sense to me. And it sounds like it would have a massive impact on the treatment community as a whole if to say, this is not about a moral thing. This is not about a failing or willpower or that you just went down the road. You learned something wrong and let's reteach you. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's the, that's the real um, important thing. And I mean, you know, in so many ways, it's a more hopeful message because like if you're a student, you're a lot more empowered than if you're a patient for one. Um, but also, um, you know, if this is just a problem that you've learned something wrong and you've learned, you know, you've kind of ingrained a bad habit in a way that is very deeply embedded in your brain. Um, okay. So we got to learn something different in order to, um, to manage that, but it doesn't mean that your brain is damaged. Now that's not to say that, you know, like you can't like drink enough that you actually kill brain cells or um, that you, you know, couldn't get some kind of brain damage from like overdosing 40 times. Um, but the fundamental wiring of addiction is a brain change and it's a kind of learning. And so you might call it pathological learning because it's so deeply embedded, but we don't even know if it's very different from the learning that you have when you fall in love, because it's kind of really hard to study that. Um, and, you know, you can do stuff with prairie voles and stuff like that, but, um, you know, you're not going to cut up humans' brains. Not, not these days. Not, we're, we're not there yet. Um, One hope. <laughs> not living people anyway. Um, you know, you and I have a, uh, a shared um, dislike for something, the, the term codependency. Could you uh, yeah. spend a couple minutes talking about why you sure, can't stand that sure. term? Okay, well, for one, addiction and dependence are not the same thing. Dependence is needing something to function, and all human beings need social contact um, to thrive. Um, you know, even the most um, hermit-like of us still need some social contact in order to, um, to really live a full life. That doesn't mean you need to be married. It doesn't mean you need to have kids. It doesn't mean you need to like go out partying every night. It just means that human beings are a social species. And so depending on each other is wired into our stress systems and the rest of our physiology. Um, so, okay. So that means that dependence itself is not a bad thing. Um, dependence is not a disease. 
codependence, therefore, is a nonsense. But what's important to realize is that, you know, let's say, um, you know, you have some kind of um, awful disease like cancer or something, and your mother is like, just quits her job to like, take care of you and everything like that. Like, oh, that mom is doing a great job. And she's like, you know, the model of maternity and, and of care and of nurture. But if you do that for your addicted kid, oh, you're codependent. You're not supposed to care about that kid because if you care about that kid, then you're going to enable them and that kid is not going to recover. And that is just nonsense. Um, we know that even if you do the most enabling thing in the world, AKA giving people free heroin, it actually helps. And we know that if you do the most disabling thing, like throwing somebody in the street, they might just die. The idea that like you could make somebody hit bottom and, you know, get the worst possible consequences and it's the worst possible consequences that make you stop. Well, we've already discussed that. It's right in the definition. The consequences isn't generally, aren't generally what make you stop. What makes you stop is some kind of realization of a need for change, which could come from, you know, something as severe as becoming homeless or something as mild as like breaking a nail. Um, you know, it's it just like all of these concepts that are linked together are just not empirically supported. Um, and, you know, yes, if you, if your kid is addicted and you are, spending all your time obsessing about them so you don't have to deal with the fact that like you lost your job and your lover um you know that can be a problem but that's not a disease um and caring for people with addiction is the same kind of thing you should do we should care for people with all kinds of illnesses and disorders and conditions and whatever else human we have um you know, and depending on another human being is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of being human. And if you don't do that, you aren't going to be able to be happy. So it's just a really bad concept that makes no sense. And we need to get rid of it and just focus on the fact that people who love people with addiction can sometimes get really hurt by them because addiction um, can involve all kinds of stuff. Um, and if you, if somebody with addiction, especially if they also have antisocial personality disorder and are cruel to you, um, you know, you probably have to get that person out of your life. You do that to save you and to save your other children and to save your friends and to take care of yourself. You don't do that to fix them because it probably won't fix them. Um, so it's, it's just, it's really interesting how there's this whole ideological mesh that is held together, codependence, tough love, hitting bottom, all this. And, you know, everything we know about addiction is just like basically wrong <laughs> based on that ideology. It's, it's so true. And that was like a, an amazing answer. I loved everything. I'm going to, next time that somebody asks me, wait, why don't you like codependent? I'm just going to say like, here's a thing. Let me play it for you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah it's just you know it's 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 really hard to unpack and I think like just because I've thought of this thought about this for so long I've now kind of come up with clear ways of describing it but it's really um confounding and for a long time you can kind of fall prey to that because oh well it is actually true that like people do like you know try to distract themselves from their own problems by like using somebody else's problems to worry about but 
Yeah, but that's not a diagnosis. And it's also not um, something that everybody doesn't do to some extent from you know, one time or not, or another, um, right. probably not everybody because probably antisocial people don't care, but, um. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it's, I, I mean, everything you're saying is just, I mean, you're preaching to the choir right now, but I'm hoping that other people who are hearing this are going to feel a little less blamed for just being like, I, I love, or I care for this person. And what, that doesn't make me wrong. Well, no, and it also doesn't make you have a disease or disorder or anything like that. Like people fall in love with the people they fall in love with. Um, You know, is it the case that sometimes people who have alcoholic parents are more likely to fall in love with, you know, people with alcohol use disorder? Like, yes. Um, But again, none of this is inevitable. None of this is necessarily pathological. And just trying to figure it out, um, and recognizing that people are individual, their circumstances are individual, not all people with addiction are alike, and not all people with addiction should be seen as lying and manipulative and, and all of those other characteristics that are thrown on us. Absolutely. Maya, thank you so much for being on here. This was a really informative and awesome. What are you working on now? So I am attempting to write a history of harm reduction. Um, and nobody has done this previously. And I always wondered why nobody did this previously, but it's extremely hard. Um, <laughs> now you know. That may be why. Um, but I am trying to do it because it's important and because um, we need to understand how this idea that was just you know, shared in the 80s and 90s by a few people went on to become an international movement that really is threatening international prohibition. Um, so I'm, I'm attempting to tell that story in a way that doesn't have 20,000 characters and is unreadable, but, um, <laughs> somehow works. <laughs> and, and where can people find you while you're, while you're writing that book? So, um, I am on Twitter way too much at M A I A S like Sam Z like zebra. So Maya as Z. Um, and I, that actually is also the URL to my website, which should probably be updated, but I'm, I'm writing regularly for Vice. I'm, I'm doing some more stuff for the Times. Um, I am, you know, also trying to get this darn book done. So hopefully I'll be doing a little less of that other stuff, but we shall see. (laughs) (laughs) And you have a regular column on Vice and I think all of your stuff is great. So everybody, okay. please follow Maya, find her on Twitter, find her online. There's a really nice um, uh, discussion section of uh, if you want to use on her book, Unbroken Brain, as a discussion group. They, they give some suggestion questions on her website, that, that old website of hers. Um, <laughs> and Maya, thank you so much for coming on. And thanks so much for having me. Thank you. We'll be back right after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Now there's a book for families who are looking to help loved ones. Beyond Addiction, How Science and Kindness Help People Change is now available at Amazon.com. Available in hardcover, paperback, and on Kindle. Pick up your copy of Beyond Addiction today. 
If you are a parent or a partner who is seeking guidance in helping a loved one with substance use, be sure to pick up the 20-Minute Guide. This is a terrific resource, and proceeds help the CMC Foundation for Change. Visit the20minuteguide.com. That's 20minuteguide.com. CMC Foundation for Change is a new not-for-profit that is all about families helping families and parents helping parents through addiction from those who have been there. Over 111 million family members worldwide are affected in some way by addiction. CMC Foundation for Change helps give these families hope through support, education, and helpful resources. For more information about CMC Foundation for Change, please visit cmcffc.org on the web. That's cmcffc.org. The largest syndicated alternative health talk program has come to the Voice America Network. The Dr. Bob Martin Show is the program that will answer your health questions and help you to heal your own body of many different ailments. Each week, you'll hear the answers that Dr. Bob gives to his callers that help them to be their own doctor most of the time. We'll also discuss developments on the health care front and what you need to do to keep your body in top form. The Dr. Bob Martin Show airs Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. This is the Beyond Addiction Show. If you have a question or comment about our show, be sure to send an email to beyondaddictionshow at joshkingpsyd.com. Again, that's beyondaddictionshow at joshkingpsyd.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. That conversation with Maya Salovitz was so fun and so informative. I think she just does an amazing job of getting that information into a way that people can really digest it. And I think that she had so many things there that I felt were what we're trying to say here. It makes me feel like perhaps I should spend many, many years as a writer so that I can get all of the, all of the words that I want to have down here uh, out even better. And if you like that uh, interview, then what I'm going to ask from you is, to go online wherever you got this podcast, wherever you heard this, and rate and review this show. Because we're getting ratings, but I don't know how one shows up on on an Apple top podcast list or a new and upcoming podcast list, but I would like to get on that list. And in order to do that, I need people to go on and rate and leave a little review. Because if you leave a little review... People read those reviews. That's how they sign up. They subscribe. And, you know, we want to get more of these kinds of shows out there with people like Maya Salovitz, with, you know, all of these experts that we've had on, want to get more of them on. So please, wherever you found this podcast, go online, give us five stars, give us a review, just write a little something about why you like the show, and please help us out so that we can start out 2019 on one of those lists and see if we can um, get this information out there to more people because, you know, gosh, you, you hear what she has to say. You think, I, I know a lot of people out there who, who need to have that information. Um, and that's the way to get this out there. 
Next week on the show, we're going to be talking with Megan McGalley, and her story is heartbreaking. She had a son who overdosed and died after um, a, a long on and off struggle with uh, substances. We're going to hear her story, and really, she's talking about everything that she heard when she was trying to help out her son, and what she wishes now that what she wishes she knew then that she knows now, like if she could go back in time and give this information. And so instead she's going to give that information out to all of, all of you who are listening. And I think it's going to be heartbreaking and inspiring. And she's just an, an awesome uh, human being who has done amazing things um, with, with her life and with her family. And to hear her story, I think is going to be powerful um, and helpful. So please tune in next week to hear that conversation. And if you have questions, I love to answer questions. I love to answer people's questions. Go ahead and email me at beyondaddictionshow at joshkingpsyd.com. That's beyondaddictionshow at joshkingpsyd.com. Or you can tweet me at docjoshking. And I'm going to answer your questions. People who have been uh, responding to on Facebook to some of the, the links to these shows, I'm responding to you guys. I, I care very much about the, the people who are listening and to make sure that we're getting this information out there and that we're getting, getting it accurate and getting it right. A lot of research that goes into this. So we're really trying to, to make sure that this is um, about you, about the, the listeners who are there. And so we're trying to get information that is valuable, that is evidence-based, that we have research for, that you can know where to find it. And speaking of which, if you're like, all right, I, I, you talk about all this stuff, but God, you talk too fast. And how do I get this stuff? We have a newsletter. And if you sign up for the newsletter, you can get a, a weekly email that says, hey, here are the, the show notes. Here's all the information. Here's everything that, that we've done. And if you go to motivationandchange.com, right under the resources section, there's the Beyond Addiction Show, a link for it, or it's motivationandchange.com slash the Beyond Addiction Show with dashes in between each of the words, the dash, beyond dash, addiction dash, show dash, or no dash, slash. And that's where you can find us. Um, and you can sign up for the newsletter and then you'll get uh, a weekly email that says, here's what was on the show. Here's where you can find that information. Here are links. So we're trying to keep this show uh, about all of you. Thank you again for joining me today. Maya Salovitz was awesome. You should check out her stuff um, online and you should check out her stuff, uh, her book, Unbroken Brain really excellent and you'll find her on vice and scientific american everybody and you know how to find me we'll see you next week thank you very much thank you for joining us this week for the beyond addiction show join us again next thursday at 1 p.m pacific time 4 p.m eastern time on the voice america health and wellness channel until the next program we wish you encouragement and hope 